Welcome to the Wibbly Wobbly Timey Wimey Podcast. I'm Lucia Kelly, expert at applied analysis, and I just snogged Madame de Pompadour. And I'm Talia Franks, media critic, fanfic enthusiast, and monsters have nightmares about me. And we're here today to talk about The Girl in the Fireplace, the fourth episode of series two of Doctor Who. The Girl in the Fireplace aired on 20th of October, 2006. It was written by Stephen Moffat and directed by Euroslin. Reminder that time is not a straight line. It can twist into any shape, and as such, this is a fully spoiled podcast. We might bring things in from later in the show, the comics, the books, the audio dramas, or even fan theories and articles. With that out of the way, kindly remember that this is Versailles, this is the Royal Court, and we are French. So let's get in the TARDIS. Okay, so we're going to be changing things up from now on a little bit. I'm going to be giving the IMDb synopsis just to set the scene and... Remind you, in case you forgot what this episode is about, I'm just going to give you a very brief IMDb synopsis and then we'll move straight on to talking points. All right, so this is the episode where the Doctor, Mickey and Rose land on a spaceship in the 51st century only to find 18th century Versailles on board, the time of Madame de Pompadour. To find out what's going on, the Doctor must enter Versailles and save Madame de Pompadour but it turns out to be an emotional roller coaster for the Doctor. This is the episode where the Doctor gets over the fact that she's not seven far too fast. Yeah, he does. Oh my gosh. Can we, should we talk about that right now or do we want to start at the beginning? The, begin, the beginning doesn't even start at the middle. And, the beginning starts at the end. The beginning mm-hmm. starts at the middle of the end. Before we get into the episode, I just want to talk for a little bit about what this woman, Madame de Pompadour, was actually like because she was a goddamn legend. I want to give a very quick brief overview because goddamn, this woman was amazing. So Jean-Antoinette Poisson was born on the 29th of December in 1721. And she was born into a fairly well-to-do family, but definitely not nobility. There's some question as to her parentage because her mum was a bit of a free spirit. It's the same thing as like Mary Shelley and Mary Wollencroft of the daughter takes after the mother and it's very Mm -hmm. much like strong female lineage. But basically her legal dad got into a bit of trouble with debting. He was basically the fall guy for a scheme and had to flee the country in order to avoid (laughs) being executed and then was like cleared up later. But because of that, Jean Antoinette was actually in the legal care of who we suspect to be her actual biological father, Charles Tottenham. I'm going to be saying a lot of French that doesn't sound like French. I'm trying my best. It's okay. Um, I barely speak French at all. I speak French like it's Spanish. I speak every language like it's Spanish. Like Italian, I pronounce it like it's Spanish. <laughs> Latin, I pronounce it like it's Spanish. French, I pronounce it like it's Spanish. Even Chinese, when I was pronouncing the opinion, I pronounced it like it was Spanish. <laughs> so her legal guardian basically took care of her education and made sure that both her and all of her siblings were very highly educated, which was unusual for the time. But she got brought home fairly early on because she always had ill health. So ended up having a lot of private tutors. But one of the things that happened was when she was nine, she had a very severe attack of what we suspect was whooping cough. 
And because her mother thought she was going to die soon, instead of taking her to a doctor, she took her to a fortune teller to predict how her <laughs> life was going to be. And the fortune teller told them that Renette would survive and basically one day, quote, reign over the heart of a king. And basically from that point, her parents made it their duty to make sure she was in the best possible position ever at all times in order to make that come true. <laughs> so suddenly she was getting all kind of very particular education and she got set up with her guardian's nephew who was a rich man and then her guardian cut everyone else out of his will so that they would inherit all of his money and then the estate they had backed onto the king's land <laughs> like <laughs> they did everything to be like this woman is going to reign over the king's heart we are doing everything we possibly can and this is still when she is not noble at all she's just like a bit rich and then she gets into all of these they're referred to as salons but they're basically like exclusive highfalutin clubs where mm -hmm. mainly men would just talk about politics and economics and what was happening and she got entry to that because of her husband and became like mm -hmm. the only woman in the room and also was like I think this and because she was so outspoken and influential and charming and whatever she ended up actually making her own club her own salon and this was where the king supposedly first heard about her is this woman is making her own salon and making moves and then there's this whole courtship thing where she would go out against protocol and watch him hunt and then he would send her venison she turned up at a ball dressed as diana the huntress like in reference to the fact that she would go and watch him hunt i know oh. she's very bold but they start this courtship and while she's still married to her husband while she's still married to her husband which in their vows she literally says I will be faithful to you unless I get something going with the king in which case fair game like, <laughs> so, so, so he was her hall was pass the, the king was her hall pass basically <laughs> <laughs> and of course King Louis is also married and this is where the whole idea of the royal mistress as a position comes in. It was understood in a lot of royal courts that marriages were political moves. Love had nothing to do with it. Liking your partner had nothing to do with it. So mistresses, of course, on the king's side only. If a woman took a lover, that was adultery. But um, it was understood that the king can have his political match and he can have his love match. And Madame de Pompadour was King Louis's love match. For all intents and purposes, from all the accounts, they fell very deeply in love and it's really cute. So like, even though when she has poor health and she's not doing very well, he refuses to take another mistress. And even though they're not having intimate relations anymore, she is the mistress of the house, the castle, as it were. And she gets super influential. So she's a patron of the arts. She's super influential in the Rococo movement. She supports one of the very first encyclopedias. She's huge into education. She has her own printing press. She learns gem cutting herself from one of the most proficient gem cutters that they could find. Damn. And also like pushes, yeah. So she's crazy cool and pushes the porcelain industry. 
she's the personal patron of Voltaire and makes sure he's at all the right parties and getting connections because she thinks what he has to say is what everyone needs to hear. And she essentially becomes the unofficial prime minister, doing stuff like appointing advancements and dismissals and getting into foreign policy. She's a huge influence in the Seven Years' War. Like, she's crazy powerful, cool. Wow. Yeah. It's very unfortunate that she died when she was 32. Yeah. So this poor health, she was always sickly. Eventually she contracts tuberculosis and dies at 42. And, like, so two things about her death. First of all, the rain that's pouring in the episode when the carriage goes out, that's not just for dramatic, oh my gosh, so sad. That's actually historically accurate. It was raining when she left Versailles for the last time. And it's noted that the king, this is so sad, he was not allowed to accompany her because it was not deemed proper. So he watched from the balcony and basically said to have been like, this is the best I can do, like, I can't actually accompany her out, but I will watch her from the balcony. And he was said to note as it was raining, the Marquis will not have good weather for her journey, which is really sad. Mm. (laughs) But also she was such a cool lady that even as she was dying, it's noted that even her enemies were like, sorry to see her go. (laughs) She was sick. I was like, oh. But yeah, no. Madame de Pompadour is so cool. I highly recommend looking into her life and what she's done. She was an incredibly influential woman and one of the most just incredible people. And it's really cool that this episode introduces her to so many people. But yeah, that's Madame de Pompadour. I've rambled for I don't even know how long. But yeah, Madame I haven't Pompadour been keeping cool. track. But it was all very interesting. Um, I loved hearing about that. I knew a little bit about <laughs> her. I knew a lot of what you said, actually. But I wanted to let the listeners know. And you did fill in a bit of the details. I'm a little stressed about this episode now that I know more about Madame Bata- mm. de Pompadour. <laughs> oh, no. Why? No, I just feel like I wish the episode had gone more into her story. <laughs> yeah, me too. Sophie Miles does such a good job of portraying her given that it's a very tight episode so Mm -hmm. I guess they couldn't really super get into it about all of the stuff she does I mean should we expect anything less of Moffat but I think (laughs) they play up the whole sex pot thing like 17th century sex pot rather than mover and shaker political force to be reckoned with yeah that's what stresses me is I really wish they had gotten more into her political ambitions and not just how she was in love with the king and in love with the doctor (laughs) oh my god okay no yeah let's talk about this fine we can talk about this there's a point I want to get to later okay I hate the doctor and Renette's relationship oh also I forgot to mention Renette means little queen that's why they call her Renette it's a nickname (laughs) they've started calling her Renette as soon as they got this prophecy from this one fortune teller. Doesn't poisson mean fish? It does, yeah. She was actually very sensitive about that because people who didn't like her would make up mean rhymes about her and do libel and stuff like that. Being like, oh, look at Jean Fish. And she's like, no, I'm Madame de Pompadour. Listen to me. Yeah, just circling back. 
to her great performance as Madame de Pompadour. I loved the interaction between her and Rose because I think it Mm. so much highlights her maturity and Rose's immaturity and Rose's savior complex and how she's like, none of this was supposed to happen to you. And I feel like Rose is condescending in this moment. And she's like, it's complicated to explain or whatever. And then she's like, no, just be direct. Like, I'll listen. I can understand best I can. And she just gets it. And she's able to process it as much as someone from the 18th century can. And I feel like that balance is really authentic. And I just loved how it really heightened the idea that Madame de Pompadour is, I think she's 32 at that point. She's an adult she's the mistress of the king she's elevated she's politically inclined she's educated she's got all this knowledge and sophistication and she's like be direct just tell me the thing just get to the point I'll do my best to understand and Rose is just I don't know I'm not trying to hate on Rose you know how I feel about Rose but the thing is I just really like how it dealt really well with their roles and Mm -hmm. I feel like it struck that good balance. It reminded me a lot, actually, of the conversations in The Unquiet Dead between Rose and Gwyneth, of mm-hmm. Rose assuming that she's smarter or has a better handle on things, or like this poor woman from a quote-unquote lesser time couldn't possibly understand, and I'm here to save you. And the woman being like, you I am perfectly capable of understanding what's going on it's very internalized misogyny it's very white woman feminism to me which again we've had multiple conversations about before of just how Rose thinks she's better than everyone and it's really detrimental Mm, also accurate to the Mm. fact that Rose is really young and I think we do have to give her credit for that I feel like again we're being biased by the fact that Billy Piper does not look 19 or 20 or however old Rose is supposed to be at this point but Rose is pretty young and yes she's an adult but she's not particularly mature in a lot of moments and she's still Mm. struggling and grappling and I think has a lot of arrogance and I think a lot of that arrogance is earned because she has done some great things but I do think sometimes she needs to be taken down a peg because sometimes people who accomplish great feats get a little too caught up in themselves yeah definitely like I want to be very clear it is completely fine and actually great it is great for characters to have flaws characters are meant to have flaws if they were perfect they wouldn't be interesting and they wouldn't create story like it is the character's flaws ideally that push story however when they're not examined and when they're not acknowledged by the writers or the crew that is when we get into like I don't actually mind that Rose has all of these things that we've been talking about I just wish it was acknowledged more by the text. Like, I do love that Renette is condescending right back when she says, listen, child, which isn't, there's a bit of dissonance there because again, Billy Piper is 25. They look the same age. There's always a moment there for me where I'm like, 
she's not a child, but in text, apparently she is. Um, yeah, I just... Yeah, no, I feel that. Even if what we were talking about, right, was actually acknowledged in the text by Renette, if Renette had said, I can understand, like, actually gone on Rose, because again, like I've just been saying, she was a highly educated, highly intelligent lady. Mm-hmm. And I feel like she could have come up with some pretty cutting remarks. <laughs> that would have been great to see. Yeah, there's a really great YouTube video that my friend sent me the other day about if an 1890 woman and a 2021 woman had a conversation by this mm. YouTuber. And I apologize if I am bad at pronouncing her name, but her name's Carolina Zabrowska. But basically, the 2021 woman talks like, you know, you got political turmoil, stinky air, overall bigotry. And at one point says, for your own sake, I really hope you're not gay. And then she's like, don't pity me. I'll just be crying about it in my beautiful Victorian mansion while my maid helps me put on a silk tea gown and I'm relaxing in my beautiful library, reading letters from my six lovers. And I'll be thinking about how you're 27 years of age unmarried and unemployed living in your parents basement and playing among us with your zoom friends in the middle of a world pandemic yeah honestly (laughs) and then (sighs) and like you have vaccines but you're not using them some of you have not lost five children to typhus and it shows okay let's talk about how the moffat in this episode just jumps out because all throughout this episode, I kept thinking of how it reminds me of so many other Moffat episodes and how Girl in the Fireplace really feels like the blueprint for Amy Pond and Riversong and Clara and all those other women that Moffat wrote. Oh, yeah. Like, like the very... kissing the doctor when she first meets him, the meeting her first as a seven-year-old and getting over it way too quickly although 11 actually took a lot longer to get over the fact that amy was seven and he didn't like it when she kissed him sorry slight digression yeah moffat is good at making things creepy but they're creepy in the same way like this episode was giving notes of listen for me it was giving notes of the 11th hour even that line what do monsters have nightmares about me felt like a very 11 line to me like Mm. yes it's something 10 would say but also it reminded me of that whole speech that 11 gives at Stonehenge I don't know it's just really opened my eyes to the fact of like oh Moffat really was laying the blueprint the whole time it feels like Moffat really works within very strict and restricting scripts Of like, Mm -hmm. this is how the Doctor is. This is how insert female companion is. He doesn't actually leave a lot of space for alternate characterization or the variety of humanity, (laughs) which is really frustrating. Yeah, it actually reminds me of, I have a friend and he was telling me that he doesn't like watching Tennant very much, not because he dislikes Tennant as an actor or because he has anything particularly against the 10th Doctor, 
but because the 10th doctor set the blueprint for what the doctor can be so rigidly and Mm -hmm. set the precedent of the doctor has to be this conventionally attractive white man who acts in this particular way. And because he set that so rigidly, it didn't really leave room for other ways for the doctor to be to really breathe. I think that's why a lot of people dropped off when Capaldi started and why a lot of people hate Jodie Whittaker so much is because suddenly the doctor wasn't the doctor anymore because Matt Smith Mm. as a doctor the 11th doctor really feels like an extension of the 10th doctor but a little bit different Mm. whereas 12 was a radically new kind of doctor and that's a good thing like people change Things should change. 13 is also a different type of doctor, a different type of person. But the thing is, at their core, they're still the doctor. Like, 9 is the doctor, and, like, 10 is the doctor, and, like, 11 is the doctor, and 12, and 13, and, you know, and 3, and 4, and 5, and 6, and 7, and 8, and 1, and 2, and fugitive doctor, and war doctor, and, like, all of them. All of the doctors are the same, but they're different in beautiful and complex ways, but 10 and 11 are so tightly space linked. between 10 and it 11 feels incestuous <laughs> how closely linked they are yeah like with old who each of the doctors were very different mm-hmm. and that was actually a strength and this goes back to back of house versus front of house or backstage versus front stage when it comes to production that was a very deliberate choice. So when William Hartnell was getting on and couldn't really perform the role anymore, they made the conscious choice to come up with this idea of regeneration. First of all, it's a brilliant way of continuing the show. But also, it's about getting new audiences in. It's about shaking Mm -hmm. up the show. It's about changing the format. It's about creating a new way for new audience members to come in while still retaining your old audience in Mm -hmm. a way that is cohesive. And even though it's a radical choice, it doesn't feel outside the world of the show. So that was a very deliberate choice. Every time there was a regeneration, it's about reinventing the show to a certain Mm -hmm. extent. And I feel like that was very clear between 9 and 10. And then 10... And 11 are like an inch apart. They're so close to each other. It's interesting to me how 10 and 11 feel so close to each other, even though there was a showrunner transition. But 11 and 12 feel so distant, even though Moffat was writing both of them. And there's a companion tying them together. But it's something I've talked about with a lot of people, how Clara in season seven feels so different from Clara in season eight. Like, it's the same actor, but it's a different character. And then even Clara in season nine feels different from Clara in season eight. Clara changes so much. And that's why it's so funny to me, or at least so interesting, when people say they hate Clara. Because I'm like, which Clara do you hate? (laughs) Yeah. So, it's just... I, we've already, I hate the romance between 
Rinna and the Doctor, it shouldn't exist. You can have an intellectual, incredibly significant and important relationship between a grown man and a grown woman and it not be romantic. And that's how it should have been. And I hate it. Yeah, one thing I really hate is the whole doctor is worth the monsters thing. Yeah. Doesn't sit right with my spirit. Mine neither. It reminds me a lot, and we will talk about it when we get to that line, but with the beast below, when Amy says, basically she's talking about the beast and how all that trauma, all that brutality, and all it did was make it kind. And she's very clearly also talking about the doctor in that moment. And I hate that line with a visceral intensity. It is never the trauma that creates the kindness. It is not the brutality that creates the kindness. It is not the hardship that creates the kindness. It is the person. Mm -hmm. It is the person and the person's strength. It has nothing to do with their circumstances. Circumstances reveal personality. They do not create personality. Mm -hmm. and this line the doctor is worth the monsters is very similar vibe to that of like oh there was trauma but there were also good moments like I would rather have just the good moments and if it comes with trauma I don't want the good moments because it isn't actually worth it yeah it reminds me of how a lot of people say Stuff like if there wasn't bad things, we wouldn't know what good things are. And I'm like, that's not true at all. I would still enjoy serotonin boosts if I never had depression. (laughs) Like, I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah. It really bothers me when people have this misconception that is reinforced by stuff like this that traumatic events are somehow necessary or important in terms of being a well-rounded person or you can't be intelligent or informed or kind if you haven't experienced some kind of hardship, it's the same sort of bullshit behind the idea of the traumatized poor artist, right? That you can't be creative if you're not drawing from pain. And all of it, that is such destructive thinking. Mm-hmm. Let's yeah. talk about the fact that the doctor strands himself in 18th century France without sending Rose and Mickey back to the 21st century. Yes. Oh my gosh. The stupid, it's so, I hate it. I hate it. He could have used the TARDIS. He could have used it. Don't give me the we're part of events now bullshit. First of all, barely. And second of all, what really bothers me every time is like, we can't use the TARDIS. We're part of events. Bro, just go a year before Wait it out. You're time travelers. Have a year in pre-revolutionary France. You can do this. Yeah. And like the thing that bothers me the most is that Moffat literally goes back on this. We're part of events now 
in future episodes. Like there's an episode in season nine. He does exactly this. It's the 12th Doctor. It's two episodes under the lake and before the flood where the doctor, he's on this underwater base or whatever. And he's trying to figure out the mystery of what happened. So he literally takes the TARDIS and goes back to like 100 years before to figure out what happened, even though he's part of events. And and then it's so ridiculous. He literally seals himself in a coffin and lives through 100 years just so that he can pop out and be dramatic at the end. Um, But he's part of events, but he did it. It's one of those things where it's a closed loop where he did the thing because he knew he was going to do the thing. But he totally went back in time and used the TARDIS even though he was part of events. Yeah. First of all, why does he abandon Mickey and Rose? It makes no sense that he would do that. If he, quote unquote, knew he was never going to come back, like he would absolutely take care of Rose and Mickey first. He's a time lord. Like, it's so infuriating because the easiest thing for him to do if he's going to be stuck in pre-revolutionary France is to send Rose and Mickey back to the 21st century and just live through the next 200 years and then meet up with them. He might be in a new regeneration, but he could just live through the next 200 years and then meet up with Rose and Mickey. That would have been a completely fine thing to do. Or even program the TARDIS to send Rose and Mickey to like it doesn't even have to be send them back to 21st century just send them to two weeks later wait out two weeks like you don't need to if he really thought that he was gonna potentially die with the clockwork people in pre-revolutionary france all he had to do was send the tardis back to 2006 or whatever and then wait out and the reason this is pissing me off so much is because there's another point where there's another time lord who gets stranded and lives through a hundred years and then confronts the heroes at the exact moment where they needed to be confronted because he knows they would be there (laughs) yeah it's literally all set up so they can have this completely stupid romantic moment between the doctor and renette also i have questions these 17th century French laborers who removed the fireplace, did they find no 51st century gear anywhere on that? I'm sorry. If it's connected, <laughs> there's shit there. If you say literally there is a basic physical connection, there is physical connections on both sides. You cannot tell me that this fireplace got completely dismantled and reinstated perfectly enough so that the thing can get connected back together again without them finding something. And yes, Madame de Pompadour could probably pay them off. That doesn't mean it didn't exist. (laughs) Or that they wouldn't have questions. I have another question. First of all, yes, they would have questions. This is entirely true. Valid point. I agree with you. Next point. Can we just talk about King Louis? You haven't aged another day. He is also not aged. And also, that wig. (laughs) That wig. It looked like it came from a dollar store. (laughs) 
and his edges. <laughs> oh, like that whole scene. I know it was supposed to be a sad scene. I know that they were both mourning her, but all I could do was stare at his edges. <laughs> like, were Actually, all of their edges that bad in 18th century France? Or was that just something wrong with the costume designer? I'm not educated enough to know. I'm going to put my bet on the costume designer, though, because that was a king. <laughs> like, and yes, just, standards just, change over time, but... They looked plastic. It was bad. Anyway, Louis' wig game was off. I actually really like the actor who plays the king. I think he's quite lovely. I love oh, yeah, the little the actor like, was light. lovely. He just had a terrible wig yeah. on. A terrible wig. <laughs> it was bad. Anyway, sorry. No, I have so much love for the production. Costume designers in general do a good job, but like for goodness sake hire more black women to do your wigs god damn i hate how stupid they make mickey it's so annoying it's so annoying he's just a stunky little goofy sidekick i did appreciate the line though What's pre-revolutionary France doing on a spaceship? Get some perspective. <laughs> I did think that was a funny yeah. one. I just wish it hadn't been at Mickey's expense. Yeah. Also, Mickey's question was a good question. This is like the whole favoritism that the doctor has about Rose, where Rose can only ask good questions. Like everyone else, whenever there's a companion, and he's always like, Rose asks better questions than you do. No, she doesn't. You just like Rose more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, asking what Arthur was doing there is a good question. It's a good question. What's a horse, as in what is this living being that is clearly outside of the time doing on this 51st century spaceship is in fact the same question. It's the, the same, same question. question. So this episode actually gave me a very real, very debilitating phobia of masks because <laughs> I watched it at a far too young age and was terrified both of clockwork people that hid under bed that was nightmare fuel for a good while but also like masks were a no-go for me because this episode fucked me up I watched it when I was like seven <laughs> The thing about this episode that annoyed me is that he made clocks evil because I find clocks really relaxing. Like mm -hmm. ticking clocks, I always get really soothed by the sound of a ticking clock. Like to the point where I have analog clocks in every room of my house. And I'm like, fuck you, Moffat, trying to make clocks evil. I'm not going to let you. Uh, I do love the droids as a monster. They're very cool, but they messed me up as a kid. I do love this thing about Ten, about how he gets so into the monsters that he's like in love with them, but he's like, but that's not going to stop me from disassembling you. And then it disappears. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to talk about how the doctor talks the droids into suicide? It's yeah. this really bizarre moment. Like, I understand that they're droids, that they're robots, etc. 
except for the fact that they've very clearly got a personality and um, sentient beings. And then the way the doctor gets them to shut down is basically emotionally bullying them into submission until they shut down voluntarily, which I would categorize as a suicide. Like, it's really bizarre. It is pretty bizarre. And I think it's just because we've been desensitized as a society to think of droids as not being people. Yeah. Which is, I think, not fair because I don't know. I feel like the way that we selectively view droids as having personalities is interesting. Also, can we talk about the fact that Mickey hadn't been shown around the TARDIS yet, even though they had time for a costume change? Also, Rose's hair is different again. Yeah, so the relationship between Rose and Mickey is markedly different between School Reunion and The Girl in the Fireplace. So many things were happening in School Reunion and a lot of stuff that was directly about Rose's relationship with Mickey versus Rose's relationship with the Doctor and how messed up that all is. And then suddenly they're buddy-buddy again, like... They're not even acting like boyfriend and girlfriend. They're acting like best friends. Like, this is the dynamic we wanted, but it doesn't make sense. <laughs> no, I get what you mean, because Mickey needles Rose about Madame de Pompadour, but without the kind of malice of an ex-boyfriend and more just the kind of like, oh, ha ha, I'm your best friend. Yeah. And this guy that you like has another girl. But then in the next episode, Mickey's right back to being the jealous boyfriend. This episode feels like it's taken out from the rest of the season. Or I don't know, it's like an outtake. (laughs) Interestingly, this episode was actually meant to be episode one of season two. That was where it was placed in the timeline. Mickey wasn't meant to be on board. And then because of scheduling issues and various other things, it got moved around until it was after school reunion. So Mickey got written in. But you're absolutely right. That's why it feels that way, is it was meant to be the premiere, which would have been wild. Yeah. Do you have any other points or things that you want to say before we move on to favorite moments and everything else? No, I just want to talk to you about my favorite moment. What's your favorite moment? Hit me. My favorite moment is when the doctor comes in super fake drunk and he's got his tie tied around his head (laughs) and he's just doing his thing where he rambles and rambles and the aliens are like, what the fuck? And then he's like, you probably think this is a glass of wine. And then he just dumps it on his head. I really like that moment because the doctor thinks he's so smart, but then the droid undoes it and then they escape. And one, I really love when the doctor does his thing. But then I also like it when people put the doctor in his place. So it's like a dual favorite moment because like, ooh, I like to see the doctor being fun and funky and silly and also smart and smug. But then also I like to see people be like, you're not as smart as you think you are. So it's a dual thing. My favorite moment is also in that vein of people showing the doctor up, which is when Okay, so first of all, this is like magical scanning that the doctor does where he just looks at little Renette and can tell that her brain has been scanned. Okay, but later on when she's older and they do the mind melt thing and she does it right back at him 
and is like a door once opened maybe walks through in either direction that is my favorite moment I love it so much she's so cool and clever and smart and I love her and I love it when the doctor gets taken down a peg (laughs) yeah no that's great I know we were talking about how we wish she was more political and less of just being sexy or whatever but I do think it was really funny how he was like you might want to close that door oh wait no I just thought that was kind of funny I'd say my least favorite moment is the doctor abandoning Rose and Mickey because the fuck for me it's a toss-up between that moment and Renette kissing the doctor out of nowhere because I'm sorry if you have what I could only assume you'd rationalize as a very vivid nightmare (laughs) where these clockwork creatures and this strange man and then you go back to sleep and nothing's changed. And then your imaginary friend comes back and everything's real. Maybe it's just not my style. I would not kiss him. I don't (laughs) think that Moffat has ever, aside from Bill, I don't think Moffat has ever written a female character that hasn't kissed the doctor out of nowhere because it happened with Renette it happened with Amy it happened with Clara it happened with River and it happened with Missy there's all moments for them where they just kiss the doctor out of nowhere and he's like the fuck except for Bill who I love and adore (laughs) she never kissed the doctor I don't think yeah I don't remember her ever kissing the doctor there are times wait no and rose kissed the doctor and martha kissed the doctor and donna kissed the doctor too now i think about it all of them have kissed the doctor rory kisses the doctor too actually (laughs) dinosaurs on a spaceship or the doctor kisses rory and jack kisses the doctor and yeah except for who passed bill like after Bill, the doctor stopped kissing their companions. I don't think the 13th doctors kissed any of her companions. Although Jack did kiss Graham. I think Renette is the hero. I feel like the doctor's the Adam. I feel like the doctor's the Adam, yeah. Because he strands Rose and Mickey. None of the worst. The 51st century, the worst. The droids were doing their best, okay? The droids were doing exactly what they were told. I don't blame yeah. the droids at all. <laughs> I don't blame the droids at all. The droids did chop up the crew for parts, but that was just because they were doing what they were programmed to do. Yeah, no. Renette is the hero and the Doctor is the Adam. So, how grading this episode? How are we grading this episode? I think this one's going to be interesting. The production, aside from the wig, I would say is a five. The wig doesn't detract it from being a five. I also... There was actually one other moment where I was like, Ooh. so it's really cool. The way that they made the fireplace set was basically the rotation is actually functional. That's not special effects. They had one set on one side of the door and one set on the other and one was France and one was the spaceship. And that's how they do the transition shots and everything like that. Mm-hmm. It's a physical set. And the scene where Renette shows the doctor the fireplace at certain angles, you can see the spaceship set. You can just see this very low green light and little spaceship shape through the fireplace. I don't um, think that's enough to detract it from being a five. 
No. I would still call it a five. That's like a coffee cup on the set of Game of Thrones. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I still want to give production a five. I don't think it's worth deducting a whole point. Yeah. Writing, I want to give a four. Yeah. I'm leaning towards three, honestly, but I feel like that might be a bit harsh. Yes, it's very Moffat, but also we have to admit he became showrunner for a reason. He's a good writer. Say, Just because we don't like it doesn't mean it's not good. I will say this episode is incredibly well paced. The really well paced. I hate that we're giving Moffat episodes such high ratings. It doesn't sit right with my spirit. Anyway, acting is a five. Acting is a five as always. Science. science I feel like the science is pretty good. The science is pretty good. There were certain moments, such as the whole doctor looking at baby Renette and being like, you're scanning her brain. And I'm like, you're not even going to have the pretense of putting the sonic in her eyes. You're just going to be a mind reader now. I mean, the, the um, doctor being a mind reader has precedent. I guess it does. It's just annoying. I think the science is mm. four. Rewatchability. Uh, I need this episode in small doses. It's not one of those episodes I can watch over and over again. So I would say rewatchability is only a four for me. I definitely wouldn't watch it like back to back, but I feel like it's a very rewatchable episode. Like, it's, a, it's one of the more tolerable episodes of season two, but it's definitely, it, it gives me indigestion. I'm going to turn you around on season two. Season two is good. Season two is a fun time. I will admit that The Impossible Planet and The Satan Pit are really good. Of all of the new seasons, I feel like season two is the rompiest. Like, it's the one with the most romps in it. Until the end, which I know a lot of people find emotionally devastating. Like, until Donna comes around, maybe, it's the one where it's like, let's just have fun. That's only one season of not having fun. (laughs) You're just saying that Martha's season isn't fun. I love Martha's season. I love Martha's season. But Martha's season has a lot more emotional depth to it throughout the whole thing. That's just because Martha's season is so tense. I feel like there's a lot of pressure because of the Saxon arc. And also because the last three episodes are one episode and they're about the end of the universe and also the master enslaves her family. Which we're going to get to the fact that a white man called the master enslaves a bunch of black people and forces them to work on his ship and then literally tortures them until they say sorry. He does that to Martha's mom. We're going to get to that. I have feelings. I have feeling and the feeling is anger. I hate Sims Master. There's so much fanfic that's 10 and sims master and i can't read it even though i love fanfic i can't read it because i'm like fuck these white men and their white (laughs) supremacy bullshit lucy was right to kill him also the fact also the fact that sims master is the one who turns bill into a cyberman his violence against black people is there and it's very real and I'm sure that John Sim is a good person, but his master is terrible and I hate him. I just want Missy and Sasha Dwan's master are great, except for Sasha Dwan's master pretends to be a Nazi. We'll get to that. Yeah, we'll talk about that too. No worries at all. So altogether, 
that is okay but john's he tries to make a master race like he makes the whole world into white men like i just the white supremacy of it all literally the master race like i just i can't i can't with him but we'll get there sir that is an 88 percent and that is a b plus Thank you for listening to the Wibbly Wobbly Timey Wimey podcast. We hope you enjoyed this adventure with us through space and time. You can find us elsewhere on the internet on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at WibblyPod. Follow us for more Wibbly Wobbly content. You can find out more information about us and our content on WibblyWobblyTimeyWimey.net and full transcripts for episodes at WibblyWobblyTimeyWimey.net slash transcripts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can also send us an email at wibblywobblytimeywimeypod at gmail.com. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and other platforms as it helps other people find us and our content. If you'd like to support us, you can send us a donation at paypal.me slash wibblypod. Special thanks to our editor, Dee, who has been a vital member of the Wibbly Wobbly team. That's all for now. Catch you in the time vortex.